Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll talk to a pediatrician about kids' exercise needs. When we talk about elderly people falling and breaking a hip, um, that's something that started when they were teenagers, and so that's why it's really crucial to get your children out playing for, for their later life. Plus, a surgeon will stop in to discuss hernias and their repair. Not everybody who has a hernia needs an operation. Uh, some people have no symptoms from their hernias and they may not necessarily need to have it fixed. And Upstate's Director of Emergency Management tells how individuals and families can stay prepared. No one can plan for everything, but certainly, you know, like I said, I would spend more time planning severe weather than tsunami. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing news, and they're all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, what you need to know to best prepare your family for a natural disaster or any large-scale emergency. Plus, are you wondering about that troublesome hernia? We'll find out more about them and when they do need surgical repair. But first, what types of exercise do your kids need to stay healthy? Well, you know, the prevalence of type both type 1 and type 2 diabetes have increased in children over the past two decades, and childhood obesity is likewise on the rise. Some have looked to the more sedentary lifestyle of our children as a possible cause for these findings. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Travis Hobart. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming in, Travis. Thank you for having me. So what do you think is the reason for this rise in obesity and also in the both the type 1 and type 2 diabetes, just from your own perspective? Right. So I think... Um, I think it, as with any problem that affects a large number of people, there are a lot of causes. And I think certainly sedentary behavior and the increase in sedentary behavior um, contributes to it. I think also the, the availability of unhealthy foods, um, the, uh, you know, and, um, you know, advertising. There, there is just a lot of um, a contributors. A lot of factors. Factors, But yeah. sedentary lifestyle obviously must play some role. I mean, yes. you look at Obama. I mean, Michelle Obama's, you know, kind mm -hmm. of idea of get moving, get the kids out there and move, let's move. Yeah. So obviously what I wanted to talk to you today about was the whole idea of what kids need in terms of their exercise, yeah. what's reasonable, what's ex, you know, what's expected and what's healthy. Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd start by just asking you, what's, what's, how much ex exercise or daily activity is recommended today for adults? Let's okay. start with that. For adults. So, so the federal government puts out, in the same way that they put out nutrition guidelines, which I think a lot of people are aware of, they also put out physical activity guidelines, which I think get less press perhaps, but um, they recommend that adults have a, 150 minutes per week of moderate activity or 75 minutes of intense activity um, or vigorous activity. Um, and so you can kind of pick and choose if you do some so, of one and some of the other. So how does that translate on a daily basis? You're looking at about an hour a day, something like so that? So for adults, it's it's less than that even. I mean, 150 minutes per week is right. a half an hour for five days a week. So, um, and uh, and I think that's partly, and we can talk, we'll talk about children in a minute, and the recommendations for children are even higher than that um, because they don't, 
uh, they don't have work, they don't have a lot of other uh, factors at play. And I think part of these recommendations goal is to try to make it reasonable for people to do. Okay, so let's get to kids. Mm -hmm. What do kids need and how is it determined in terms of age-related yeah, uh, so, expectations? Um, so the guidelines for kids, they, they technically only apply to kids six and over. I, I think that's just a, a technicality almost. Um, and I think you can kind of uh, stretch the, the, the recommendations to, to younger kids too. But they recommend 60 minutes per day of physical activity. Um, and it should be moderate or vis vigorous mostly. Um, and, and at least three days a week of vigorous. Um, and it should have uh, multiple components. So there's yeah, so that's what I want to talk about what the components are, but that does seem like a lot, and, mm -hmm. and I think we'll talk a little bit about what are the components and examples of what kinds of activities are, you know, are judged to be acceptable along right. those lines. So if you start with, the first thing I guess is important is aerobic activities. Explain mm -hmm. what that means first. Yeah, so aerobic activity means that you're getting, uh, your child is getting their heart, heart going, they're, they're, you know, getting a little bit out of breath perhaps. Um, and then uh, there's a difference, they say moderate versus vigorous. I'd say if, if they're really, you know, breathing heavy and, and out of breath, then that's going to be a vigorous activity. Um, there's no, you don't need to measure their heart rate necessarily or anything technical like that. I think you can usually tell if they're really out of breath, that's probably vigorous activity. If they're, you know, walking quickly around the block or riding their bike in a leisurely manner, that's probably moderate activity. And then the other, there are three components we started to talk about. One is aerobic activity we mm -hmm. just mentioned. The other is mu muscle strengthening activities, and the last being bone strengthening activities. So mm -hmm. let's go to muscle strengthening. What constitutes mu muscle strengthening activities in children? Yeah, so in, in children, most children aren't going to be doing weightlifting or resistance training the way that we think of muscle strengthening. Um, but that's okay. Uh, all we want is for children to put more of a load on their muscles than they normally would in everyday life. So children do this by playing on the playground or climbing ropes or trees or um, uh, carefully, of course, but, um, um, you know, pulling on things or, you know, uh, climbing things. Tug of war Tug kind of, of war activities. is an activity, exactly, yeah. that kind of thing. How about bone strengthening? And bone strengthening is really all about uh, sort of impact with the ground. So, so uh, uh, running, jumping, playing basketball, um, jump rope. Um, hopscotch, those kinds of things where, where they're going to jump and land on the ground. And that, that helps the bones model and shape to prepare for that kind of in impact. And that prepares the bones for for being stronger so that they don't break in, in similar impact. Yeah, but the, I think isn't it really important to know that a certain amount of bone strengthening really must take place. There's a crucial time frame. Yeah. And in a way, childhood and adolescence is that crucial time period to build strong bones so you don't end up with problems later in life. Is yes, right? absolutely. Um, what, what they found is that most of us reach our sort of peak bone density, our strongest bones, uh, when we're in our teens and 20s. Um, so when we talk about elderly people falling and breaking a hip, um, that's something that started when they were teenagers. And so that's why it's really crucial to get your children out playing for, for their later life and being um, healthy in later life. So how do we know, you mentioned a minute ago a little bit about how you know whether something is moderate or vigorous intensity. It seems a little bit kind of hard to probably judge. But the, the idea here is you want to see that they're short of breath, that they're breathing heavily, mm -hmm. and, and, and is that considered vigorous? I mean, help us understand those yeah, two I concepts. Think, I think if, if they're really breathing heavily afterwards, and that would, I would say would be vigorous. You know, you might see moderate might be more they're, they're walking, probably able to talk or carry on a conversation or, or biking and talking with their friends. 
um, um, maybe going on the up and down the slide would be probably more moderate and vigorous would be playing tag or older kids playing soccer or playing football or basketball or the sports activities that they tend to play. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatrician and preventive health expert, Dr. Travis Hobart. And we're talking about how much exercise children need and also what its impact will be on their overall health. So um, basically when we say age appropriate activities, I mean, we've alluded to the fact that you don't have a six-year-old lifting weights, barbells. Right. But, I mean, what would you, you know, how do you comment on that in terms of parents thinking about what's age-appropriate for right. kids? So, so generally speaking, if we're talking about, let's t- start by talking about younger kids under six, I think. Yeah. Um, they, they generally aren't going to be doing the structured play, um, the, you know, playing in a soccer game or a football game that older kids are going to do. And, and that's fine. And that's part of uh, developmentally normal uh, uh, activity. They're playing with their friends. They're sort of learning social norms um, and they're getting activity out of it, playing on a playground. Um, and then as they get older, they have more capacity to, to do the structured games um, that that we know, you know, soccer, whatever. Um, and apply themselves, you know, follow rules, learn skill sets and all the things that require a little more cognition. Absolutely. To be able to follow rules, follow directions, all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and generally speaking, most of the activities that are out there are, are prepared for kids of the appropriate ages that they, and that's why they have age limits on which team your kid goes on because every kid's at a different developmental stage. Um, and in terms of weightlifting, I think that's something that I get a lot of questions about is when is it okay to do weightlifting? Um, I think it's, I think generally the AAP policy, American Academy of Pediatrics policy is that it's, it's okay even in, even in 12 or 13 year olds and above, um, as long as there's supervision. Um, and, and none of these children should be doing maximum strength lifts. You know, the recommendation is to do low amount of weight on a, a rep- repetitive basis so that they build up the muscle. That and way. the reason for that is so that they don't either strain their muscle or in, mm-hmm. can in some way, can that type of weightlifting retard bone growth or um, harm anything? So I think there's a, there's been a, a thought that it might uh, slow, slow growth in the, in the long run. I think in general, the, the data is, is that that doesn't happen. Um, but but still, I think the main thing is injury and avoiding injury. Um, and 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 now I, I just recently saw a study that said that this low low weight repetitive exercise is actually as good at building muscle as uh, lifting a maximum maximum weight. Um, so there's really no need to lift the maximum weight. Do you think all of the things should be structured? I mean, when you get to a certain age, or do you think? I mean, is there a need to have there be even in the older population more of an uh, some balance between structured, you know? Right team kind of work and then, I mean, exercise and then just kind of fun mm-hmm. play kind of thing. Right. I think, I think what the data is showing, and this has been changing recently, is that uh, we're, we're very focused on structured play, but the kids do need some unstructured play. Um, in particular, like I mentioned, young kids, that's part of their developmental process is learning how to play with other kids, learning what rules mean, making their own rules even, not necessarily rules imposed to, on them by adults. Um, and that's really important to them. But even the older kids, I think it's important to get some unstructured play as well. And and actually, even adults, it's important for us to get unstructured play. Yeah, called um, fun. Yeah, it's called fun. <laughs> and, and we tend to forget it in this uh, society. It's not where always goal-oriented. Go, 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 go. um, and I'm as guilty of that as the next person. But um, but it is it is important to have fun, and it's important for our mental health in, in particular. So. What does New York State currently require in terms of school-age kids in terms of exercise? Yeah, so, so the state, um, and that's something that parents should remember, is that this goal of 60 minutes a 
day, you're not responsible for all of that. The school's going to help you out. Um, in elementary schools, they, they need 120 per minutes per week of physical education. Um, so that's about 24 minutes a day. Um, and then um, that has to be every day in the really young grades, K through three, and then grades um, four through six, it's at least three times per week. Um, and then the older grades seven through 12 are required to do 90 minutes per week. And that has to be either two or three days a week. Um, so, so they get a fair amount of it during school. And that's phys not ed. Count, phys ed. Yeah. And that's not counting recess, which that's unfortunately is, yeah. So on the, on the plus side, that's more play and that's more unstructured play. I think, unfortunately, some of the schools have done away with recess in, in recent years, which is, um, unfortunate because of all the maybe learning initiatives and all the pressure for them to perform the standards exactly yeah there's a lot of pressure to do well in the classes there's so much to do and so little time unfortunately so how do we get our kids to be active i guess that's the point what do you tell parents Mm -hmm. so so i think i think the key thing and i and i think in our uh, our time it, it it really ties into screen time unfortunately a lot of times that's what kids are doing if they're not being active um and and so when i say screen time i mean anything that has an electronic screen a television a computer a tablet a phone um a video game system that all unfortunately sort of eats away at the physical activity time so i think um parents should really try to put limits on that. Um, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually put put out new guidelines for that, change the guidelines somewhat and loosen them in some ways and also reinforce some of the things. What um, are they, quickly? So the in, in young children, they say it's okay for kids under two to have some screen time now, which they used to say was not okay. Mostly they say it should be uh, Skype or FaceTime talking to family members. Um, and I certainly do that with my just turned two-year-old um, and have been for a while. And um, and then to the preschool kids, they recommend uh, less than two hours a day. No, sorry, one hour, is it, one hour a day of educational programs. And they really mean like something like Sesame Street. Um, uh, PBS programs generally meet the bar. Um, and then older kids, they say it really should be a family decision in, in terms of how much they use. And, and a lot of that comes into what's needed for school and school work, um, but also, you know, what, what everyone's comfortable with. I mean, it seems to me it's really important to try to limit the tendency to be sedentary. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I think of it as a losing battle, Yeah. especially as younger and younger generations of kids are getting smartphones handed to them and tablets mm-hmm. handed to them. It used to be you had a desktop compu- computer and you could say, I'm not putting that in your room. It's going to be in a common space. So A, we see what you're doing. B, we can limit how much time. But today with all these mobile tablets, you know, mobile devices, it's much harder to control. Yeah. And I really stress to people, I think it is really important to get them out of our room, even though they're mobile now. I think at nighttime in particular, I think the TV screen, the tablet, the phone, they should all be in a common area. The kids leave them, they go into their bedroom and go to sleep. Um, um, and, and leave them out of there. And then I think other limits uh, in terms of the parents saying, you know, okay, you've had your time, now let's go outside and, and, and play. Um, yeah, and it's a lot harder, it seems to me, in some ways in a climate like ours where, especially once winter comes, it gets mm-hmm. dark early, there isn't as much, it's cold, it's yeah. damp, what have you. So obviously the goal is to keep kids active, playing, expl- experiencing things that keep them vigorous, yeah. and the long-term effects quickly in terms of Yeah, the long-term effects, I think all of these... Things tie into having a healthy lifestyle and building that from childhood. And these habits, studies have found these habits last throughout um, our lives and into adulthood. And that builds, keeps people from getting overweight, having high blood pressure, getting that type 2 diabetes that you mentioned, um, by building these habits in from an early age. So really, there's a lot to be said for keeping your kids active 
moving mm -hmm. and enjoying it and making it a family activity, setting yeah. a good example by doing it yourself. Yeah, and that's one thing we didn't talk about in terms of setting an example. I think it's really important for parents to say, okay, it's a family activity time. Terrific. Thanks so much. You always have such great advice. My guest has been Dr. Travis Hobart, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Coming up next, what you need to know to best prepare your family for a natural disaster. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Natural disasters and large-scale emergencies can happen anytime, and you may not always be together with your family or your loved ones when these events take place, so it's important to make sure that you are prepared. Here with more on all of this is Christopher Dunham. He's the Director of Emergency Management at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So just over in an overview how can everyone prepare for disasters? I mean, are there simple steps that people need to take? Absolutely. There's a couple of simple steps that we have, um, and there's a lot of resources online that people can look through, but basically it's develop a plan, have one ready to go, and have some simple supplies available uh, to help facilitate that plan. What are the kinds, when we talk about natural, natural disasters or large-scale emergencies, I mean, what are the hazards or emergencies that might affect you or your family? Um, it really depends on the geography or your local area. So um, certainly in central New York, we have weather of various degrees. Um, and with weather comes maybe power outages or um, road conditions that don't help us get places we need to go. Uh, we don't run into, thankfully, terrorism. Um, consistently here. Let's have our fingers yeah, crossed, Yeah, definitely Chris. not going to <laughs> So we, we do have a lot of um, natural disasters, but we rarely get earthquakes here. So, you know, or that tornadoes, might, thank yeah, goodness. Thank goodness. So that would be lower down on our list. But we, we definitely would want to maybe push maybe severe weather to the fore. When, are this, is there a distinction between what's called natural disasters and what they call man-made disasters? And yeah. what is that distinction? Uh, the distinction is the causality. So basically, a terrorism would fall under a man-made. Um, industrial accidents, man-made. Um, those can be large-scale disasters sometimes. Um, like a, a terrible spill of some yeah, kind of some sort toxic of hazardous, chemical. Yep, hazardous materials incident or something like that. And then the natural disasters, tornado, uh, things like that. So let's let's talk a little bit about how people would find out about this. I mean, what's in place today? I mean, obviously, many people are tuned into their smartphones. They're connected to the Internet, and maybe to a fault, people are tuned into their screens. But, I mean, generally, how is how has the word gotten out, and how, can, how do people become informed of these kinds of things? There's a lot of resources on the web, and the government, FEMA specifically, has done a tremendously good job in creating checklists and printable items that people can use to develop their own plan, 
to make sure that they're covering all the bases for their region. It's actually broken out by, you know, if you want to do a plan for severe weather, there's a severe weather plan. If you want to do a plan for certain other things, it's based on geography. So, if, you know, if we let we lived in a earthquake prone region, we could do that. Um, it's actually at ready.gov. Okay, ready.gov, we'll remember that and we'll link to it. But specifically, I mean, if you're out and about doing your daily life, how are you, I mean, what's the best way you're notified? Let's say you're not near your phone. Mm. I mean, generally, what's happening kind of in our community or even on a large scale, larger scale basis to notify people that something significant is occurring? Uh, a lot of the cell phone companies have uh, instituted sort of an alert system where um, if there's pending, uh, weather is typically the thing that jumps to my mind. Uh, weather let, alert type. Yeah, weather alert things where it automatically comes to the top of your phone. That's actually, I don't want to say new technology, but it's being rolled out uh, in a robust fashion across various counties. Um, typically people will get news alerts, um, on their phone, you know, like if you have a certain news agency app on your phone, it will push forward an alert, but it, just having a general awareness of, of your environment, of your situation, certainly, um, many, for many of us, it is not our first winter in central New York. We need to be aware of sort of changing conditions and things like that and, and, and be aware of what's going on around us. Now, also, don't the radio and television stations have these kind of alert mm -hmm. systems? We actually test for them every yep. month or something yeah, to make test, sure they work? Yeah, the National Weather Service does test for them. Um, actually, they have a lot of um, automated scrolls on the bottoms of the screens and things like that. And, and they're pretty effective in, in getting the word out. So let's get to what you do, okay, in terms of being prepared. You mentioned that you want to develop an emergency plan. So is it the kind of thing you want to sit down with your family or loved ones? Is it the kind of thing you do kind of solo and then deliver it to people? What do you recommend? What do you think works best? Uh, sitting down as a group is typically best. Um, it enables uh, everybody to have input in the plan. Um, and it's actually kind of how we do things at the hospital. We kind of gather a lot of the stakeholders together and do that. And also, if you have children, um, it enables you to kind of talk through why this is important and what they need to do and kind of go through any questions as it's being developed. And possibly what to expect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and there are things that, in terms of plan development, again, looking at things that you expect to happen. Um, no one can plan for everything, but certainly, you know, like I said, uh, I would spend more time planning severe weather than tsunami. In central right. New York, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. But how about identifying the responsibilities of each member of the family? I mean, and so maybe even isolate, you know, a particular contact person because, as I said in the opening, it's quite possible that you're not going to be together yeah. when something occurs. And so there needs to be a methodology or a end individual with whom everyone kind of connects. Or a rally point or something like that. Absolutely. And, and usually um, you would want to pick maybe somebody, obviously a, a trusted friend or family member, um, who, you know, if, if no one can get a hold of anybody and there's a, a disaster and you're still able to f safely move to that point or that person or communicate with them, that's the check-in person. Um, and that, you know, the, the key to any good plan is making sure everybody understands the plan and you communicate that. So if you pick that rally person or that check-in person, you need to tell them. Um, and yeah. they need to be part <laughs> of the plan, idea. too. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and, and usually getting their involvement as well. I guess also uh, along those lines, maybe this whole notion of choosing a place to meet. Yeah, there should be a Ahead couple. of time. Yeah. You know, 
especially if it's possible to meet at your home. In other words, if your home is not endangered, that's yeah. one thing. Right. But in some nat natural disasters, maybe not so much here in Syracuse, you might have to evacuate Correct. your home. Correct. So you'd want to have one point for the kind of the information or the check-in. And certainly, um, you know, it, there's always that sort of rally point where if there's a house fire, which is immediately outside the house, which, you know, I have small school-aged children. They get taught that immediately. I think I was taught that in school. And that's a great practice. Um, and that should be somewhere really cl close. But you'd want to pick somewhere outside the neighborhood a little bit in terms of the person to communicate with. Because if you're having to do that, the assumption is, is you're losing either the ability to communicate effectively. You're not all in one place. You know, certainly cell phones um, are great. But during big weather events, sometimes they're not as reliable. They're not functional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've got to kind of do the old fashioned landline. Um which is a point for why people should keep landlines. <laughs> this is a bone of contention I have with my own children who mm -hmm. are millennials. But this whole idea of being able to actually stay in touch even during kind of a power outage or yep. that kind of thing. And also one of the things with cell phones you got to remember too, and maybe we'll touch on this when we develop our, our list. You have to Cell phones are great, but you got to charge them. And if there's no That's electricity, yeah. you can't charge them. There's ways around it. But um, developing the plan and communicating that to all the members and then making sure the outside... Uh, folks know it too. If you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with emergency management expert Christopher Dunham. We're talking about disaster preparedness. So it seems to me also you need to make sure that you tell every family member to let you let to let an individual know that you're safe yes. if you're out somewhere away from your family. Absolutely. And one last thing about that is this idea of keeping track of your pets. Yes. Because if you should have to evacuate, shouldn't you be knowing where you can go that might accept a pet. Absolutely. Kind of if there's uh, local places that maybe not shelters, but maybe uh, pet friendly hotels or motels that you'd be able to go to with them or even family members who would be willing to take the pet while if something were to happen. So let's go over what a disaster pre pre preparedness supplies kit would look for. How long should it last? Uh, the minimum I think would be about three days. That's the minimum for every person there. So whatever you put in the kit, make sure you have enough of whatever to last three days. And that's based off of the ability, the perceived ability or time frame the state or the federal government would be able to send resources in. So We do know that in some cases, like with Katrina and other natural, terrible natural disasters, it took a lot longer than three days. It did. And actually, a lot of the preparedness stuff that came out of what's on the web now actually came from Katrina because a large number of people had nothing. And, and so let's very quickly run through just a little bit of a laundry list of the kinds of things you'd want in your disaster preparedness kit. Absolutely. First and foremost, water. You've got to have one gallon of water per person per day. So if, 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 it, if the, the kit is just for me, I need three gallons to go three days. Um, if you get somebody who, you know, is, um, and that's children, one gallon per person per day, you know, that way you'd have a little bit more than that. Does that include water for cooking and or bathing or uh, brushing no. your teeth? Or? Uh, yeah, pretty much you can use that as what they term potable water, whether it be drinking and or maybe, you know, doing some brushing of the teeth or, or maybe a little cooking with it. Mm -hmm. um, more water is always better. So a minimum of, of three minimum, gallons absolutely. per individual. Absolutely. What else? Um, food. Food is usually a really big ticket item for three days. Non-perishable items are very important. So canned goods, that absolutely. kind of thing. Absolutely. And things that you might not need to heat up. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because Stuff you, you can may eat not cold. Have, 
Right, you might not have a microwave. How about some other things? How about medications? Uh, you'd want about two, a couple weeks worth of medications, as much as possible, which I realize might be hard for some folks to do. They should have a conversation with their doctor that they're doing this, and maybe they'd be able to get some help there. At least to stockpile some Absolutely. extra stuff Absolutely. just in case. How about your pets? Should you be putting oh, yeah. away stuff for You've your pets? You've got to have um, not only you know food and maybe treats or whatever for three days, but, but toys for them. Also, um, diapers infant formula, things for small children, and, and, you know, simple things like games and decks of cards and board games and things like that. Because, you know, if you are in a natural disaster and the power's out, the uh, video games aren't going to work very well. How about records or, you know, in terms of what your possessions are, that kind of thing? Is it important to, for example, take pictures of the valuable things in your home? Let's say it's a flood type circumstance. Pictures would help. Um, Certainly documentation on the house, uh, copies of birth certificates, copies of maybe marriage certificates, um, copies of even deeds or any sort of like, um, especially um, vehicle registration and things like that. All that all that insurance information is especially important. You Birth certificates, have, passports, yeah, that kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to mention, going back to food, and we were talking about canned goods, you want to remember to have a manual uh, can opener. Yes. Because <laughs> many people yes. depend on the electric yes. one. That's not going to help. Yeah, you got to have the old-fashioned <clears> one. How about batteries or radios, that kind of thing, first aid kits? Uh, radios, they make actually some nice radios now that are actually hand crank. Um, batteries, oh. batteries are great, but, you know, again, batteries do don't last forever. Um, flashlights are very important. Uh, you know, it's just after Halloween now, so there's a lot of those glow sticks. Those are good to have around too. Um, but flashlights are very important. How about first aid kits? First aid kits are great. Um, certainly you're going to get cuts and things that, you know, normal course of business and having that is always important. So bottom line is, um, I also read somewhere, keep your gas tank full. Yes. <laughs> so that's a habit maybe to get into. Yes. Because yes. we never know no, you how never long know. we might be stuck somewhere. Exactly. And, and, you know, certainly running it down to E is not a very good option. Now, you represent the hospital. Your job is basically emergency preparedness for the hospital. Yes. What are the kinds of things that, you're, that you worry about or how do you prepare for emergencies? For the hospital. Well, emergency preparedness upstate is a team sport, and we prepare for a large influx of patients, um, hazmat incidents, and a large number of other big ticket items because upstate can't simply just put a closed sign on the front door. So how do you prepare, just really briefly? Um, We develop plans. We stockpile supplies that go along many days for all of our patients um, and for most of our staff. And And is there training for your staff in terms of it? very much so. Very much so on a yearly basis. Um, we try to train as much as we can. So you're ready. So if we so have any kind of a disaster, you're ready. I believe we are. I want to thank you for coming in. That's very reassuring to know. And I appreciate all your great information. My guest has been Christopher Dunham. He's the Director of Emergency Management at Upstate Medical University. And once again, Chris, you always come in with a lot of very important information. So thanks so much for that. Thank you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Question number one, or six words to happier and healthier. Well, folks, I'm just back from a four-day weekend, a really fun get-together with my dearest high school buddies and ladies, bookended by 
mega to and from road trips, supposedly seven hours, but turned out 12 or 13 with bumper to bumper, then more bumper to bumper, bumper to bumper, bumper to bumper. <laughs> so late Sunday night, checking Monday's work schedule, I am tired. Of course, Monday is scrunched because undone XYZ flipped from last week's Scrabble board into this week's. You pay before you go and you pay when you get back, right? Anyway, my worker bee alleged mind suggests you could squeeze in X by skipping your morning workout. I always run or bike before I head to my quadrangle in the beehive. Anyway, now I'd already missed Sunday's run or bike because up at 4, then driving till 6 p.m., and Saturday's run was quick because cook and eat and chat and joke and boat and swim and cook and eat and chat and joke, etc. And then I remembered my old friends. Two packed 40 or 50 unhealthy belly pounds and are edging on type 2 diabetes. Another had been 150 pounds over, did stomach staples and could only eat like a bird. Another, a long-time battle with the bottle, thankfully sober years now. Another, high blood pressure and other stuff with pills galore. And one, a former smoker, had both a heart attack and a quadruple bypass. Serious. Then, listening to that, my worker bee relaxed. And a big picture question number one popped. What's more important than my health? Hmm, six words. Try them when your mind wants to squeeze in X, Y, Z and skip your walk or run or dance or garden or swim, etc., etc. What if you don't do any of those for the 10, 20, or 30 minutes a day yet? Five words. What's more important than starting? Remember, good health and good relationships link to more happiness as we mature. <laughs> Dr. Rich, I did my run. find out more about hernias and when they do need surgical repair. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Updates Health Link on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. 
Abdominal wall hernias are the most common of all surgical problems. More than one million abdominal wall hernia repairs are performed each year in the United States. And joining us with more on all of this is Dr. Mustafa Hassan, Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of Acute Care Surgery Section at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Hassan. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So help us understand exactly what we mean when we talk about an abdominal wall hernia, or what is it? That's a very good question, Linda. There are so many kinds of abdominal wall hernias. And funny enough, uh, there is a song by Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, it's called Living with a Hernia. That actually explains <laughs> it very well. Okay, if, so. Uh, anybody is interested. <laughs> but uh, for to answer your question, there are a very common kind of hernia, which is the groin hernia. We call it inguinal hernia, and it happens in the groin. Very, very common. That's the most common kind of hernia. And of the groin hernias, there are many, three or four types of groin hernias. And, uh, and then there is the incisional hernia, which is really, really uh, considered a, a national health problem t to some extent. Really? And it's big industry, and, you know, there's so many devices and techniques for fixing it. But so what it, is that? You know, how does that differ? An incisional hernia is a hernia occurring at the site of a previous incision. Uh, what people don't know is that every time they have an incision for any operation, uh, they are at the risk of developing a hernia. And a hernia, by definition, is protrusion of abdominal organs through a hole in the abdominal wall. So having an incision is a potentially weak spot, and that weak spot healed by scar tissue is not as strong as our native tissue. So it can develop a hernia, which is protrusion of abdominal organs, mainly intestines. So what happens, I mean, help us understand that or visualize that. You've had an incision, you've had repair of something within your abdomen, I would imagine, okay? And then you're sewn back up and scar tissue forms. And what you're suggesting is that scar tissue does not remain strong enough to maintain the, the, the organs within in their place and they kind of work their way back out That's somehow? correct. That's exactly correct. Of course, not everybody who has an, an incision develops a hernia. Some people more than others, and some operations more than others, depending on the circumstances around the surgery, if it's an emergency surgery or it's an elective surgery, and the patients themselves. So yes, some people will develop a hole or separation of that incision or distension or stretch of that scar allowing this to happen. But it also occurs, as you mentioned, without surgery, without prior surgery. In other words, it, it, can, in a, it can occur spontaneously in some people, as you said. Correct, correct. Uh, there are some areas in our abdominal wall that are more prone to having hernias than others. An example is around the umbilicus, the belly button. People can have an umbilical hernia, and sometimes above the umbilicus. In addition to the groins where people have hernias, we can have hernias without having an operation. Right, and that really is the same concept though. There's a protrusion of some inner organ through a hole in the uh, infrastructure below the skin. Exactly correct, yeah. that's and, correct. Yeah, so why, I mean, you mentioned with the, the issue of obviously incisional hernia that's following some weakening of the wall, but why else do they occur in, in a person, let's say an abdominal hernia? Is it because they lift heavy things or is there a family history associated with it? Why would someone get one? That's a good question, but we do have areas in our abdominal wall and the groins, I mean, but around the, uh, the belly button as I just described, where these are potentially uh, weak areas or potential areas for a hernia to occur. Uh, as you know, we have those two muscles and the six-pack that you can see people walking around with. <laughs> but in the midline, in the middle, there is no muscle there. 
and around the umbil- the the belly button there's a a defect, a small defect that can allow this to happen. Not everybody gets it, but some people may have it. Is it gender related? In other words, would you see that it happens in more in males than in females? Or as I mentioned, family history play a role as well? Yeah, well, it depends on the kind of the hernia. Some hernias are common in, uh, in male versus females. These are the, the groin hernias. Um, but, but the, overall, I mean, do you see more males getting hernias than females? or is Well, it, it, again, it depends on what kind of hernia. Okay. So if, uh, let's, if we talk about incisional hernias, anybody who has an incision, it doesn't matter male or female, can have a hernia in the incision. So it really is very dependent on the type of hernia. Exactly. Uh, so if how would you know? I mean, how does someone know that they have a hernia? I mean, it seems self-evident if you see a little outpocketing, but, I mean, are there other issues? Is there pain associated? Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, for uh, people usually complain of a bulge, and that bulge can be associated with pain. Of course, as the hernia progresses and gets bigger and, and it gets complicated, they may have other symptoms. If the hernia has intestine in it and the intestine gets basically stuck outside in the hernia, uh, they may have issues with um, nausea, vomiting, ability to have a bowel movement, uh, in addition to increasing pain. But the early signs are just a bulge usually and a bulge with pain. It's interesting because I was going to ask you that right after that question, what are the complications, and you're alluding to that a little bit, if, for example, strangulated bowel, if a bowel kind of gets stuck in the hernia, it can cause all kinds of complications. So it can be a very serious problem. Absolutely. It's not something very, and you mentioned in the beginning, it's a number one health problem in the United States or seen as a public health problem. Yes, it's not a number one health problem. Not there are number many one. number ones, but yeah, there's many number <laughs> yes, ones. But yes, but it, it is definitely a a, a, a big uh, issue when it comes to surgical complications. Um, a hernia can get strangulated, like you mentioned, which means the loop of intestine that's stuck outside may get more stuck, and its blood supply can get stuck, compromising the blood flow to this loop of intestine, and that's an emergency. You call that a strangulated hernia and requires people to come to the emergency room and have an emergency operation. Because they, they could even have a perforation of the bowel then and, and all kinds of infection following that. And so it's it's a very serious thing. Correct. Correct. So basically, would you say that every hernia needs to be evaluated? I mean, if you were talking to the general public, would you say if someone notices this bulge with, with or without pain, it should be evaluated in some way? I think so. The, the evaluation and... and Having knowledge uh, of what we have or what may happen is very valuable. And I think, yes, every hernia suspected, anybody who suspects that they do have a hernia, have to be evaluated either by the primary care doctor or by a surgeon. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with trauma surgeon Dr. Mustafa Hassan, and we're talking about abdominal wall hernias and their treatment. What's the impact on a patient's health or lifestyle? In other words, assuming it's not yet treated, they find a hernia or they experience having a hernia, does it have an impact on their lifestyle, on their ability to work, ability to function? What's your experience with that? In most cases, yes. Uh, Having a bulge and pain in the abdominal wall may prevent people from doing something they're used to doing. That's number one. Number two, if people have a big abdominal wall hernia, they don't have muscle in that area. So even the basic functions that we do every day without paying attention to, like getting out of bed, 
turning to one side to the other is sometimes difficult because we don't have this muscle support. That's for big hernias. Um, definitely a lot of people are concerned cosmetically about having this bulge coming out of their abdominal cosmetically, wall. Cosmetically, yes, of uh, course. You know, that's always an issue. Um, and there is always this threat of this getting worse or getting bigger or getting strangulated or obstructed and so forth. So it really is something that needs to be paid attention to, and it can interfere with your everyday functioning, as you said. It can, definitely. So let's talk about treatment. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is surgery, but are there other... You also alluded earlier to the fact that people are selling devices, all kinds of other ways to, you know, intervene with a hernia. What, you know, what's the general thinking about treatment? Well, um, I just have to be clear that not everybody who has a hernia needs an operation. Uh, some people have no symptoms from their hernias, and they may not necessarily need to have it fixed. Uh, others have a hernia, but the risk of fixing it is higher than the benefit because of their general medical condition. Um, so not everybody needs their hernia fixed. Um, How does one know, though? I guess, is it location that determines it? the degree of um, uh, limitation they experience. Obviously, the, if they have other comorbidities, medical issues that would c be contraindications to surgery, obviously that would play a role. But if uh, you're otherwise healthy, how would you know whether you could handle it with, let's say, some kind of a, a, a strap, a, a belt? I mean, I know that they, they offer those kinds of things. Yeah. This is where evaluation uh, becomes very valuable. That's a decision that has to be made by the primary care doctor, the patient definitely, as well as the surgeon. Um, the hernia has to be evaluated and the risk-benefit ratio estimated. Yeah, because it sounds like there are some people who should clearly avoid a surgical intervention, Absolutely. as you said, because of any number of potential complications Correct. that could follow it. So let's talk about surgery itself. What's involved? I mean. Are there newer approaches? Are there, uh, is there new material being used, new techniques? You know, how do you approach, let's say the, the patient is a go for surgery. What do you do? What's necessary? Well, um, of course, it depends on what kind of hernia it is. Uh, the inguinal hernias or the groin hernias are very different than the incisional hernias. Um, so uh, I will try to focus on incisional hernias because most people are not very familiar with them. Uh, there's, I mean, here at Upstate, we do have uh, an evaluation process that patients uh, go through and to see if they are uh, candidates for this hernia repair or not and prepare them for the operation. The operation, depending on the size of the hernia and the patient, may not be as simple as uh, people think for a groin hernia. Some of those operations may take four hours, uh, between three to five hours. Um, Is it the location that makes it so complex? the location and the size of the hernia, and the presence of many other factors such as previous repairs. So if the patient had the hernia fixed before, do they have a mesh placed before and the hernia came back? That increases the complexity of the operation. Now you mentioned the word mesh. Yes. Help us understand, as I mentioned before, what is there? A, is that routinely used these days? Uh, some kind of a mesh that is put in place to support the abdominal wall? Help us understand what That's you do. That's a great question because um, the public know about meshes from uh, TV ads, and meshes have become very famous and the source of litigation. Infamous. Yes, <laughs> correct. But actually, it's a great invention. 
it has revolutionized the treatment of hernias since we started using them. And I would like to say that the use is almost routine. The question here is which match for which patient. And that's a decision that has, you know, many many things factored in, a decision made by the surgeon so with there, a good knowledge from the patient. So there are a variety of meshes to choose from. Absolutely. Okay. So um, basically, you, you do the inc incision, you put the mesh in place, and... What's the prognosis for repair generally? Are there complications? Mm -hmm. You know, putting aside the commercials on TV from the, the, the lawyers looking for a litigation opportunity. Yes. Well, um, the key to do this operation is to bring back in, uh, the tissues as, as they were created to start with and reinforce them with a piece of mesh, basically. This can be done with an open operation. Uh, or can be done robotically now. Oh, we used really? to do them laparoscopically, but now we do more robotic uh, cases. Just It's all about selection. But the concept is to put a piece of mesh and close the muscle as well to provide adequate uh, support. So you close the muscle, but you reinforce basically that wall with that piece of mesh. Usually under the muscle or in between the muscles of the abdominal wall. Now you have a multidisciplinary approach to this. You were alluding to your program. Who's involved in this in the very little bit of time we have left, and, and what's the goal? The goal is a patient uh, good outcome and satisfaction. The, the team is formed of plastic surgeons, hernia surgeons, as well as dietitians, nutritionists, nurse navigators, and the, the, the whole point is to provide good outcome, uh, low cost for fixing the hernias, and excellent patient experience. Well, that really says it all. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate your coming in and sharing this whole overview of hernias. And I didn't realize incisional hernias were as much of a problem as they are. Thanks for uh, enlightening us. My guest has been Dr. Musafa Hassan, Associate Professor of Surgery and Anesthesiology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Cancer is a 24-7 forever companion, and not in the sweetest sense of that word. To be sure, it can bring out the good, the noble, the profound, and it can also make us wild with fury and fear. Rita Cerisi is a novelist and short story writer who directs the creative writing program at the University of South Florida. She gave us two short essays that reveal the underbelly of cancer's effect on us. Here is Swindled, followed by Cancer Does Not Bring Out the Best in Us. Swindled. In the family room, there's a Keurig coffee maker and a vending machine that dispenses plastic pods of house blend, French vanilla, green tea, and dark chocolate. Dollar bills only, it reads. Over the long course of your illness, I feed dollar after dollar into this machine and hunker down on the sagging sofa, nursing my half-hot drink and watching Beat the Clock, and you bet your life, and the price is right, and let's make a deal. One day, I open my wallet and find only a five, so I take a chance and feed it into the dollar bill only slot. When the machine swallows my five but does not deliver my French vanilla, I burst into shameful tears. You're dying, but all I can think is, 
I want my money back. Cancer does not bring out the best in us. The doctor looks back and forth between my sister and me. Which of you is his mother? I thank God my sister is the one who has to say, I am. for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore the importance of empathy for both patients and healthcare providers in the healing process, plus tumors of the spine and brain in children, and how to keep your family safe during the holidays. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.